Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and happy Chinese New Year to you. It's nearly upon us. Woo-hoo! This is Drive-by Cinema Series 4, Episode... Who knows? Episode 27, I guess we'll talk about that in a second. We're going to say 27, yeah. Gong Hei Fat Choi, Paul. Gong Chi Fat Hai, yes. Huh? In a variety of dialects. It's the 10th of February this year, so well done, everybody. Congratulations on making it for another year. And apologies to all those people who like to number their episodes and understand what number we're on, which may be no one at all listening. We may be clapping one-handed in an empty room, yes. But I have fucked up the episode numbering. I missed out numbering an episode, episode 24, which caused me to make episode 24 be 25. I think a GTSE examiner would do, allow, allow the follow-through, so you still get the marks for those, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've gone back and renumbered them all. Dependencies. I think it's technical term in Excel sheets, isn't it? Attendant dependencies. Sorry, go on, Richard. All right, so... Mistakes out of the way. It is quite by chance that we wind up doing a Chinese movie review around Chinese New Year. It is completely by chance, yeah. And it's also by chance that we happen to be doing it at a time when there's been considerable social media interest in the whole Chinese and the piano in St Pancras Station. Oh, yeah, you said you were going to talk about this, but I've, I've probably forgot that we were going to talk about it. We've got to talk about it because... I did see two clips on social media, but I wasn't really clear what's going on. I mean, obviously, I've seen lots of people playing piano in various public concourses. So to catch everybody up, just so they're aware, some YouTuber guy who apparently films himself playing the piano in public quite a lot, I guess. I think he's Mm -hmm. called Brendan Kavanagh or Dr. K or something. He was doing a live stream YouTube in St. Pancras Station, where they have a public piano. Apparently, it was donated by Elton John. Didn't know that. And he's playing away on his piano. Part of his live stream broadcast, he'd noted a little group of people doing something else on the station. Concourse. Concourse. There were a group of people, evidently Asian origin. Now, Kavanaugh had been accused, has been accused since of being racist. Because on a couple of occasions, he, he asks if they're Japanese or calls them Japanese. The reason for that, though, which is clear if you watch all of his live stream. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> they, they seem to be filming or doing something and, and videoing it on a camera. But the reason that he thought they were Japanese is he, he was meeting a friend at St. Pancras Station. His friend, I think, is some sort of TV producer. Right. He had been engaged to meet with a Japanese TV crew to do ah. something or other. He had put one and one together to make 2.5. And he, he just put out his tentacles and said, are you Japanese? Okay, understand it all. That's right. But it has been spun that he was being very racist. I don't think he was. I think he was slightly confused, understandably, that he was expecting a group of Asian people to be videoing things. And there they were. And when he asked them about it, well, the first lady said, no, I'm Chinese. That doesn't mean the rest of the crew weren't also Japanese, right? He could have also assumed that she was there with them. Yeah doesn't mean that they're not the Japanese TV crew. He said it again later, that's the thing. He'd had a few interactions with them, some of them friendly, got them to dance a bit. But then later on, one of the girls with the delegation comes over and says to him, look, we need you to stop filming us and we'd like you to remove or delete the videos and not publish them or blur our faces. Okay, well, she's entitled to make that request, but he's entitled entitled to to ignore it. To ignore it, quite exactly right, which he did. Now, the thing is... Both like, could he not have just? I mean, for the sake of peace, could he not have just played along? And said, "Okay, there you go, deleted, thanks, bye," and they just carry on recording. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what he should have done. Should have the done, thing sorry. is, both sides of this contretemps <laughs> could have handled it so much more. What's the word? Diplomatically, cleverly, mm-hmm. but it it gets very screwed up very quickly because when he refuses and saying he's within his rights to film in a public place, blah 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 blah, more of the Chinese delegation come over, including one chap who gets very angry with him. When he says something about them, he says something about, at one point, we're not in communist China anymore, this is Britain, we can do what we like, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He motions towards the flag being waved by one of the people in the group. And this guy goes, do not touch her, do not touch her, you're not the same age as her, do not touch her. <laughs> he shouts that several times, going, again, completely losing his rag. And The same age, completely- yes, okay, there's lots of interesting arguments going out here, aren't there? Completely failing to de-escalate the situation. The obvious thing to do if you were in their shoes is go, okay, well, we'll wait, or we'll wait till you've finished on the piano. I think they wanted the piano. Or we'll go somewhere else. There's probably dozens of I see. Okay, so essentially it was competition for resources. 
But the interesting thing about all of this is in the subsequent fallout from it all, two things have happened, which have in many ways more interesting than the original exchange, although there is plenty to, there's plenty to get your teeth into. One is that Kavanaugh has ended up going on all of the right-wing sort of news and channels and GB News and whatever else it is. He's talking. become lauded as some sort of, he's been hoisted on the shoulders as some sort of saviour for Britishness, is that right? <laughs> yeah. British yeah, values. Uh, that's right, that's right. Meanwhile, there's been quite an incredible backlash of uh, CCP supporting people. The first sign of it is in a lot of the discussions and YouTube comments and people just typing. I saw a lot of people very aggressively saying, oh, this is trivial. We should ignore this. We should ignore this. This is... <laughs> Why is everyone paying attention to this nonsense? <laughs> okay. Maybe the fifth person saying that so stridently, you might start to wonder, right? One of the girls, I think the girl who first comes up to him, who I think is... Certainly British resident, maybe British-born even, but she made some other videos really editing him to make him look quite bad, taking out the bits where he's asking them if they're Japanese and so on, mm-hmm. trying to come across as very reasonable from their side of the story, which, let's be clear, they weren't very reasonable. I'm just interested in the whole argumentation around these kind of things. The first thing he says, do you watch the auditor, visit, auditor videos? Oh, God, they're terrible, aren't they? So I think in that situation, yes, these people do have a right to film from a public space into private space or into public space. It's if true. you're in a public space, you can, yeah, that's right. Do you have the right to follow somebody after they've asked you not to follow? No, you don't. At that point, it's not about filming. At that point, it becomes harassment, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so the thing is that laws don't exist in isolate, do they? I can film in public, but I can't upskirt people, can I? <laughs> yes, quite to, put so. it, to extend it to its, to, 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 to its, to its logicality, where you can see it breaks down. So I do think some of these auditors are, at point, they're provoking people. They're, they're, they're deliberately provoking a response, mm. because they know they'll get YouTube videos if a security guard or a policeman has a go at them. But unfortunately, of course, the law's on their side, because usually it's a security guard pursuing conversation with them once they've been provoked. At which point, of course, they aren't walking away. You can carry on filming yeah. them, of course. That's true. So it's annoying, but at the same time, a lot of people suggest they get a punch in the mouth, which I absolutely do not agree with. We need to change the laws and that rather than punch people in the mouth. But yeah, the argumentation, I think, is really interesting. Uh, you were saying the same age argument. This, there's suddenly this is idea that you can't restrain minors. It's just an idea that's taken over as being law. And whilst it's true you might risk prosecution, if the law doesn't support your reason for restraining a minor, of course you can restrain a minor like you can restrain anybody else. And by the way, the lady in question was not a minor. Exactly. This whole same age argument is just, it's just taken over the idiocy of, of, of social media, hasn't it? I don't know how, exactly how old Brendan Kavanagh is. He's a middle-aged man. But he's not the same age as she is. You know? I don't know. Honestly, she's Chinese. She could be anything from 28 to 53, for all I know. I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk about the movie as well. Yes. But I'm not sure what age she is. She's not really, really young, I can tell you that. And so the other argumentation, the other structure of arguments coming now is criticising, for example, like ethnic food on an individual sort of dish basis. So you might say, oh, I love those dumplings. I love, I love these noodles, but I don't like that pig's heart. And then for that criticism to be accused of being racist, which it could or could not be, but it isn't definitely and definitively so, is it? And that's an argument that just holds up as being watertight all the time. But particularly, yeah, different ages, she's younger than you kind of arguments. They're just seen now as being absolutely lawful. Not, not just correct, but kind of like have some sort of standing in the law, which they purposely don't. So just thought I'd mention that in case I was confused about it. And there's this phrase that's come about, pinks. It seems to be yes. a term for people who are supporters of the CCP. Yeah, 10 cent Mao's. <laughs> because a Mao is a coin in China, which is worth 10 cents. And Mao, of course, was famous. Pinkest, if you like, if you want to use those. Slightly demeaning references. But they're paid, they get paid by the penny to reply to or to troll, if you like. Content that's seen as non-ideal for, for, the, for the Chinese state and its progress. Hmm. So what, what's your thinking, Paul? What do you think about, who's right and wrong, do you think, in the... Clearly in this situation, although I've only seen bits of it, it's, it's, the pianist is in the right in every respect, I think. I mean, there's an essential point being missed by everyone here, which is it was a live stream. <laughs> it's too late. It's too late, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. well. We've put the world to rights, and I hope everybody who should be embarrassed by what they did there is embarrassed. And now, let's listen to our own piano-based music? No. Potentially. No. Some kind of electronic synthesizer, probably. 
Let's go squiggle. Here we go. Oh, can you be held responsible for making us watch this film? Yes, I can. Okay. You haven't asked me the name of this film, Richard. No, well, we're coming to that. It's quite oh. complicated. For Drive-By Cinema, this is an exceptionally complicated film name. It's more than one word, isn't it? It is. An eggplant... What? What? <laughs> an eggplant... An eggplant skittish skills on the floor. <laughs> no, I've got well, that right. I can't remember a writer, Richard. An elephant. An elephant, sorry. Sitting, sitting still. still. Uh, it's, it's a Chinese aphorism of some sort, the actual Chinese name. It's kind of like an elephant sitting still on the floor. They like to sort of tautologize their their phrases, don't they? Okay, reinforce their phrases with two things that mean the same thing. So it's a quite poetic name in Chinese. I see. Well, that makes more sense now then. We never get to see the elephant, do we? Although we'll hear, we'll hear it briefly at the end of the movie, don't we? Spoiler alert, Paul. Yes. Well, we're all about spoiler alerts here, aren't we? I never at any stage expected that we would see an elephant. Oh, I did. As we went through the movie, I was continually reinforced in that in that feeling. So you kind of uncovered the director's sort of final meaning, didn't you, really? The life never delivers, does it, really, I think? It's fair to say that when you suggested that we watch a four-hour <laughs> Chinese-language film, which has themes of depression, nihilism, and suicide, trigger yeah. warning, I've got to say, by a director and writer who, at the end of this film, kills himself... Yeah. I had to steal myself for this, yeah. But this is exactly the kind of thing we should be doing in this podcast, isn't it? Because all along, we have forced each other to watch movies for one reason or another. So that other people don't have to. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so you, you're suggesting this movie promised to be somewhat bleak. Yes. Having said that, the reviews on Letterboxd gave it, were giving it a high score. Gushing, yes. It's well-reviewed. What was the reason that you wanted to see this? Well, I was just, I was just attracted to the idea of a four-hour movie. <laughs> but the reason was, it stars somebody who's actually about 31 years old, uh, Peng Yu Chang. He plays the lead young male, the lead adolescent Wei Bu, who's supposed to be 17 or maybe... 17, yeah. Seven, the next to last year of uh, Chinese high school. But I, I met him briefly about a month before. This is how it all came up. What? Uh, you, was, what? Yeah, not met him, no. I'd, uh, no. I met him online in my Netflixing. So I was binging some sort of stock Chinese drama, and he was in that. And then I thought, all right, okay. I thought he looks a bit older than the... He was playing a high school tennis player. Okay, right. It's a high school tennis player sort of series kind of thing, where the girls all kind of make cakes for the boys they love and that kind of thing. And it's, well, it's, it's a funny little series. Anyway, so just something to rock your brain to. And so I, I searched him up online. I thought, well, God, he is like 30-something years old. And then this popped up and I thought, ah, oh, there we go. A four-hour movie. And he's playing a schoolboy in this as well. He is playing a schoolboy in this. He looks a lot younger in this one, though. He looks convincingly almost like a schoolboy. I, I was going to say, my world is rocked to learn that he is... 30. I think maybe he's like 25 when he made this, but still, he looks really young. I don't know how we're going to be able to go through the full story of this film, because it is let's four know. hours long. Well, well, let's see what happens. I mean, the thing is, it is kind of three or four separate stories cunningly interwoven together, isn't it? Before we start, did, it, did at any point you feel there was some black humour going on here or not? Was it ever funny for you? It was never laugh out loud funny, no. Look, I've got to say, okay, overall, and before we get into this... I really enjoyed this. It oh, did not okay. drag at all for me. I didn't watch it all in one go. I broke because I started too late in the in the evening. Well, I think sensible, I, I think, with a four-hour movie. I watched two and a half, three hours and watched the rest of this morning. <laughs> Just two actually. and a half or three hours. Then. Yeah. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was over long. So at no point did it provoke intense soul-searching and stares into a crack mirror in the middle of, in the middle of the night for you? All of that, yes. Of course. Oh. But I didn't find it as bleak as it might be on the on first slice really if you look no. at it straight on no. I didn't find it as bleak as that and it brings me to lots of questions I have about the director it's quite soap opera isn't it there's lots going on there oh it's very much a soap opera you know and I was thinking about the, the runtime. it's certainly less than watching the entire series that we watched the Korean one about the drug dealing school yeah it's actually quite similar in some respects, I found. Although that was much funnier. <laughs> if you're going to watch, if you're going to devote like six hours or whatever that was, or 12 hours or something, to watching a series, watching a four-hour movie is, is easy, really. A lot of times because this is 
definitely it sits in the arts movie corner. Would you agree? Generally speaking, it does, but it's it's not particularly intellectual, is it? But it's not pretentious. No. It's the opposite of that. It's a it's like a Mike Lee film, isn't it? Or something. Yes. It's that kind of it's that kind of movie, but a lot of it is. I think a lot of his directorial skill is on trying to capture reality rather than capture the acting of reality. So there's lots of kind of camera footage where we're just we're silently following people walking to or from a destination point. So a lot of the time yeah. is yeah. quite gentle in a sense. It's not like we're being bombarded with four hours of things to process. It's not like a Marvel movie that never stops, is it? Yeah, we talked in one of the episodes recently about. The kind of dominant school of movie making in Hollywood is intensified continuity, and this is absolutely not that. Yes. Here, we, we don't have many cuts. In fact, this lives very comfortably in the long sequence, very few cuts kind of territory. Some of the lengths of the scenes are very, really long, as you say, and they, as you said, they move from one location to another as we follow. Without cutting, yeah. Yeah. It's quite sparse in that sense. Sometimes there's several minutes with no dialogue at all. And it's taken at a leisurely pace, generally speaking. It takes place over the course of one day, really from the morning when we wake up. We first wake up with a cold open on this guy who's waking up with a woman in bed. And he's talking to her, I think, about the story of an elephant sitting still. Yeah, they introduce it from the start, don't they? It's a thread running through the film. And he says it doesn't matter if you whip it or shout at it or strike it. It just carries on sitting still. It's amazing. Let's go and see it. And it's in this northern city of Manjuli. Man- yes, school? yes. So they're nearby, or not so nearby. I don't know, really. They're in Sijuazhong, which I don't know how near or far that is. But it's in the kind of coal, the sort of uh, coal valley of China. So yeah. it's, Man, it's an industrial wasteland, isn't it? Mm, this yeah. entire city that they're in is filmed. I think I read that they filmed it entirely at dawn or dusk. So it's got this like pallid, sickly grey colour. The whole film is graded. Filmed in that kind of light and presumably colour graded in that way. And it's all kind of washed out. Everything looks like it's covered in ash, doesn't it? Yeah, so I'm thinking it's going to be near to Beijing, basically. Because it's just, it's just like you say, an industrial fossil fuel wasteland, isn't it? So maybe 200, 300 miles from, from Beijing. I read that he was hoping like for more kind of misty fog and pollution. But I think some of the factories had actually shut down or were on a shutdown for some reason. Oh. Consequently, Must have been an Olympics happening or something. Maybe. Consequently, it wasn't quite as gloomy. Uh, quite often he had blue skies, I think. It wasn't quite as gloomy as he's hoping for. But still, it doesn't come across that way. We switched to another apartment. This is the apartment lived in by Weibu, who is the, the boy mm. we're talking about, played by the 31-year-old. <laughs> he is being told off because someone's left the window open. It makes it all stinky. Again, I think they're talking about pollution, aren't they? Now, his dad seems to be... Invalided in some sort of way. He's got a broken leg, hasn't he? Broken yeah. leg, yeah. He's in his room making some kind of makeshift weapon. Out of, was it deep fried bread of something, some kind? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was some sort of long stick that he wrapped in a masking tape or something. Apparently, we learned later in the movie, his dad was a police officer, potentially. Uh, and he uses to beat suspects in order to get the truth out of them without bru- bruising them. His dad's not very nice to him, is he? Let's just no. say he's quite abusive. We go back to the man we started with, who's with this woman in bed, and there's a knock at the door. Yeah, it becomes Just obvious that he's, he's an interloping lover, yeah? Yeah. He hides in the bedroom, and she talks about he's there to pick up his shoes or something. In due course, although he's trying to remain discreet, this guy comes into the room. This is emblematic of the way the entire film is shot, because mm. both of them stand there, stock still, saying nothing. It's not obvious at all who's seen who initially, but it becomes obvious that the guy's standing there in shock because he's seen this this guy his wife is cheating on him with, or his girlfriend is cheating on him with, after what would be a ponderously long time in any normal movie, but it's quite a short time in this movie. <laughs> he seems to resolve, and he moves straight toward the window. We are to understand in the next shot that he's jumped out because we see his body lying yeah. on the ground. So the wife's husband has jumped out the window. It later transpires, transpires in the movie because, I mean, it's all revealed quite slowly that this is the the interloper's best pal. Okay, so he's been cheating on his best pal's wife. Turns out the guy the guy's cheating is a gang member, Yu Chung. He is from quite a rich family. They've got a set of sort of automobile garages, a bit like the Russo's later on in Cobra Kai. <laughs> 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 so 
So I, I think this is really interestingly done. The suicide and the shock afterwards and his response and her response and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that his friend's mother turns up later and he's got to face her. It's all quite uncomfortable, isn't it? This is a critical part of the film, isn't it? Because this event motivates quite a lot of Yu Cheng as his character development, really. Yes. It, I think it, he's, he's having a breakdown, really, isn't he? Or he's having a huge transformation within this day. He is, yeah, that's right. I think we're given to understand at the beginning that he's probably, he's probably. I'm going to use this word a lot, aren't, aren't I? He's kind of nihilistic kind of character, isn't he? He doesn't really care about anything. He, he is, does. yeah. I mean, he's from a rich family. He doesn't need to be a gangster, but he chooses to be one. But so he's very this event, the- seeing his best friend kill himself because of his actions, which actually initially he, several points throughout the film, he tells people that it's their fault. Clearly, really, he's yes. telling them that it's his fault and he feels guilty about it, but he doesn't know how to process that. But he does internalise that through the film and he does change him. I mean, everything really revolves around him as opposed to the lead male, Wei Bu. Everything is connected to him. He's connected to a young girlfriend. He's connected to his friends commit suicide. He's connected later on to Wei Bu, isn't he, through his brother kind of stuff. So Yeah. We've got to talk now about the third little story. This is a scene in which a little family... Mother, father, and a young daughter living with their father, the daughter's grandfather. Yes. Who I'm going to have to call grandpa because I don't know his name. Wang Jin, I think he's called. They're talking internally about their plans for the future. They want to try and move to a district with a good school. Yes, it's interesting, this, wasn't it? To do that, they're going to have to downsize. They won't be able to have anywhere for grandpa. To <laughs> they're going to have to get rid of granddad. Which is difficult because it's his house, not theirs. And he has a dog. You can't take a dog into a nursing home. But he's obviously he obviously loves his granddaughter. He's obviously moved by the argument that his granddaughter deserves a good school. I suppose he wants to do it in many ways, but also he doesn't want to lose his dog and he doesn't want to live in a nursing home. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, Chinese nursing homes are, are, are fairly awful. I mean, and, and most Chinese families would never, ever put their parents in a nursing home. So I think maybe culturally, this young couple, they're supposed to be portrayed as being particularly horrible and heartless, you know? Heartless, I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could sleep on the living room floor, couldn't he, in the new home? It's his bloody money. It's his house, you know what I mean? His dad uses an interesting phrase. He says it's not an iron bowl in the long run. Yes. Does that mean there's no security? Is that what... No security. So, I mean, the north of China never really... I mean, it still kind of has its iron bowl structures. kind of. What what do you mean by an iron bowl? A job for life. uh, Benefits for life. And at the most Maoist moments, university places for those that haven't studied anything over and above people that have studied things. So the idea that performance in itself should not lead to rewards. One's revolutionary spirit is what should be rewarded. And of course, that doesn't need to be rewarded materially anyway, does it? It's to decouple material material benefits from actions in society. It's an idea that per- perpetuates in the north, but you know, in the rest of China, it's kind of long. It's over the over the hills in the rest of China, kind of thing. About now, we get the titles playing out over very rainy road trip through this very misty city. It's incredibly moody. The scene immediately after it, we see this kid, uh, Weibo, talking Weibu, with. Yeah. Talking with his mate, I think we find out later he's called Lee Kai. Or Lee Kai, that's right. Yeah. Apparently there's been a dispute with a bully. Now this was set in classic sort of movie style. They're, they're kind of, they're almost behaviourally and personality-wise quite opposite, aren't they? I mean, Lee Kai's a live wire, isn't he? Well, he's taken a gun he's found from his dad's curio collection and he's showing it to Weibu. Whereas Weibu, although he's impulsive, he's just he's moody. He's a cool cucumber. He's moody yeah. and impulsive, isn't he? Yeah, so he, yeah. he can think things through, doesn't he? He's not going to be impulsive. But so they're, they're set out as quite diametric opposites, aren't they? Which is interesting. But Weibu does talk about this. He calls it a fried churro, I think, in the subtitles. In, yeah. What Were you reading the subtitles or can you understand the dialogue? I was doing both. Okay, okay. Because their northern accents are quite thick. It's kind of like... Interesting. I, was like, I mean, to people that aren't used to Northern Chinese, it's almost like they're chewing marbles as they speak. <laughs> Oops, I'm going to be called racist, aren't I? That's a regionalist, not a racist comment. He, he says of this thing that his dad used to interrogate, interrogate people with this. It leaves no marks. So, yeah, maybe true, his dad was yeah. a cop. Yeah, didn't realise that, actually. They've got a meeting to attend, haven't they, with the school bully? The story there is that the bully is accusing them of, I think... Particularly Lee Kai, Lee Kai. Stealing his phone while they were playing basketball. Wai Bu is there to trying get his to back, isn't him. he? Yeah. He's yeah. saying, I know he's not a thief, he's my friend, he wouldn't steal your phone, why would he steal your phone? He's already got one of his own, that kind of thing. A very fair comment, yeah. So they have one meeting and then a second meeting, the bully says, well, meet me away from it, all the teachers up the stairs, 
at break time or whatever. Now we're going to see another character, fourth character now. Ultimately, these are going to become an ad hoc family in a way that reminded me very much of Broker, the Korean film, when they end up on a road trip. Yeah, I did think about that, actually. Yeah. This is a girl called Huan. Huan Ling, yeah. She lives with a mother. I don't know where the dad is. I think they refer to him not being around later. She's complaining to her mum about the leaking toilet and stuff in the apartment they live in. Although their apartments are like proper dumps, aren't they? They're, well, it's kind of like if a China that doesn't really exist anymore. But then I, I imagine the North is, some of the North is like this, you know. I mean, it's all pretty... They're like apartments you'd expect to find maybe in the 70s Soviet-era Eastern Bloc, aren't they, kind of stuff. She's going to school, so she leaves the apartment. She goes downstairs. Outside, there's a big white dog sniffing around. Looks like it might be rabid or crazy. Right. It seems to be growling quite a lot. She seems threatened by it. She, she's got a baseball bat by the door, like an aluminium baseball yeah. bat. She pops it out, and it's getting ready to swing at this dog, but it... It buzzes off, doesn't it? So she puts it back and goes off to school. Where Weibu and Lee Kai are meeting with this bully. He's videoing them as he menaces everybody, isn't he? And <laughs> tells them to meet him later. Meet him later. Weibu then goes down and he sees the vice dean in his office who tells him that the school is shutting down. <laughs> this is quite funny. See, I think this is supposed to be funny because like, he's, he's supposed to be the vice headmaster and he's like, yeah, this, this shitty school is shutting down. Luckily, I'm going to a better one, but you guys are going to an even worse school. You'll have no future. You'll only be collecting rubbish on the streets for weight rather than as a bin man, or you'll be selling uh, selling skewers on the street corner kind of thing. It's just so frank and just so such a such a thing you shouldn't say to a kid, isn't it? You know what I mean? This is a film and it's bleakest. I know you say it's funny. Maybe it is dark, dark and humorous. Again, it's very kind of Mike Lee and it's hopeless, isn't it? It's a hopeless situation. All these kids going to the school, which this teacher says is one of the worst. That's why their school is performing. It's already portrayed as being pretty shitty, but they're going to an even worse one. So yeah, you'll be all be sent to a worse school. You've got no prospects. There's no way of getting out of this. When he goes outside, there was a kid being bullied by the bully. Just says that this world is a wasteland. This film is full of people who, like, in little asides, say the bleakest shit. <laughs> it's incredible. Now, he meets Juan outside and he says to meet him later. At, he's basically af- asking her out for a date, really. Yeah. He says, meet him later at Monkey Park, which sounds Park. like the most exciting thing in the town, if you ask me. Uh, well, she says, what the fuck is there to do there? He's like, I don't know. We can go and feed the monkeys. But she says that she can't. She's a prior engagement, which we'll learn later is actually with the vice dean. Putting the vice in Vice Dean. <laughs> but she warns him about messing with the bully, who's called y- Yushui? Yes, Yushui, yeah. She says that he's got a dangerous brother. Well, we know who his dangerous brother is, although we maybe don't know yet, but we find out who his dangerous brother is. Key scene next, though, is when Weibu and his mate do meet the bully yeah. uh, on the school steps where the bully told them, on, like on the staircase. Obviously, there's... A fractious engagement. Well, I think he'd be taking the piss out of Weibu's dad saying, you know, he's he's got arrested for taking bribes and that's why he's at home not working kind of thing. Now, I may have been writing a note or I may have been just reading the subtitles, maybe not following along on the action. I wasn't sure whether Weibu punches the bully or just pushes, pushes him, him back. I think he just pushes him. It's not a big attack, but they are on the stairs, on the stairwell kind of thing, on the Ooh, yeah. mezzanine level kind of thing. And the bully guy falls back down the stairs... Winds up in, in, a, silence, yeah. in a heap at the bottom. Yeah, I thought it was really well shot. I, I was really convinced. It felt like we were almost there with somebody tumbling down the stairs. Well, it's so naturalistic, so. isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. And again, it doesn't cut away. Quite a lot of action in this film happens not only in the background but actually out of focus. <laughs> and you, you're focused on the foreground action, but things quite important are happening in the back, aren't they? So it's been set up. Obviously, now we can if breaking this down. But the gangster's brother is obviously going to be hurt and that's going to fuel some sort of revenge on the part of Yu Chang, our gangster lead. But I didn't really see that as I was watching it. I never really connected that to a sort of projecting what I thought was going to happen in the story. For me that developed over the next few scenes I think it became obvious that that was going to happen. But but the gangster is, Yu Chang is already thinking he's going to be leaving town because he's been told by the woman he was sleeping with his best friend's girlfriend. He's been told by her that his best friend's mum is coming and she's going to want to see him. He doesn't want to face his best friend's mum to tell him that he saw him commit suicide because he was sleeping with his girlfriend, obviously. Yeah. So he's packing his bag from a zip-up wardrobe 
And then he does something really weird. He's got a fag in his mouth. He cuts the end off with a pair of scissors and then relights the freshly cut end. Yeah. What is, what is that Well, if, if, if your fag has gone out, then that, that ash that's still in the cigarette tastes really awful Won't if relight. you relight it. Oh, oh. It will relight, but it just tastes horrible. I see. So you have cigarette shears to solve the problem. <laughs> as he's leaving, as he's packing to leave, he's calling a woman. We don't know who she is, but he's saying that he's going to be gone for a while and arranges to meet her for a bite to eat. Grab a bite, I think is the phrase in the subtitles. Yeah. He also gets a call that tells him that his brother has been beaten up at school. And it's serious. He's in hospital or whatever, yeah. And so we know at this point, as, as, as I say, we, we're starting to get the idea that he's going to have to do something about this. Now, Wei Bu is B back home. I think he's understood, having been warned previously before anything happened with the bully, that he had a dangerous brother. He kind of understands he needs to get out of town, doesn't he? But not before he's going to meet up with Huang Ling, the girl of his dreams, in Monkey Park. When he was at home, he discovers his dad has taken all of his money that he was keeping in his mattress. Yeah, what a twat. We also have a disturbing, upsetting scene where Grandpa is walking his little small dog. Oh, this is so upsetting. But I he think it's encounters... supposed to be horribly, horribly funny. He encounters a big white dog in an alleyway. Yeah. Although you don't see any of this. And again, this is what convinced me we wouldn't see an elephant. We learn that the bigger dog has killed his little dog. Or at least hurt it. He just takes it to the vet and it ends up being put down. Can we just tie up that little sub-story? Because it doesn't really go with the rest, does it? Okay. So later on, uh, there's a woman posting... For a missing dog. Lost yeah. lost dogs, which happens to be a big dog. And so therefore, he finds where they live. And the black humour is that when he goes there with his dog dead in a bag, it turns around and they just, they're just so unsympathetic. And they almost want money off him, don't they? Well, he does offer him... He offers Grandpa money. So yeah. you're going to blackmail us. I'm not really sure what Grandpa really wanted out of that exchange, if I'm honest. Maybe an apology, at least. Apology, yeah. I think it's what he went for, yeah. But initially, they, they get very angry with him and they ask him where their big dog is. And he, he doesn't want money, but they're just so they're just so determined that, that he mm. has the worst intentions that they become aggressive and start chasing him in the street kind of stuff. So. It is bleak, isn't it? It's horrible. It's a horrible circumstance. Yeah. So we're in Monkey Park, aren't we? And basically, Quang is saying... Way boot, you're a kid, and all you can do is play. Is it called hacky sack? Shuttlecock. Shuttlecock. Mm. Shuttlecock. Which is fair enough, because if you later find out, she's quite a mature girl, isn't she? You're not piling on enough misery here yet, Paul. Because no. before they meet in Monkey Park, first of all, is there misery? We know that uh, Yu Cheng has gone to to the school and got Wai Bei's address off the vice dean. Yeah. We also know Wai Bu on his travels. He's going to see his granny actually. He's found a brochure on the bus for the Great Circus in Manjuli, where the elephant supposedly lives. So he's right. getting this in his head about this elephant as well. Does his grandma Johnny happen to die at that point? Yes, he finds that his grandmother is lying <laughs> dead in bed. He lets his uncle, who lives just down the street now. Again, they live in a really, really terrible bit of terraced housing. Maybe Forgotten China, yeah. Yeah. Perhaps ex-industrial units? I don't know what it is. It looks horrible. Well, I mean, what it would be is back in the day of work units. Work units, yeah. Work units. So the factory is, I mean, essentially, they're, they're kind of self-contained socialist fiefdoms. Fiefdoms are our workers. It's not It's not feudal in that sense. But, I mean, let's say there's 4,000 workers. Then within the perimeter of the factory, there's going to be all the housing. There's going to be the school. There's going to be the hospital. And everything for that community to function is self-contained. Which has a, it has a knock-on effect because, like in Western countries, we think of what the state provides as being provided by the state. It, old communist China, what the state did was force the work unit to provide everything for their for their employees. So, kind of like if you're like almost devolved or privatized, if you want to see it in that in that sense, it was it was your company that had to provide all these things for you. And so, the knock-on effect of that is that a lot of the housing wasn't very good, but it's still it's still hanging around for people that can't afford better. Weibu goes to the pool hall where he's keeping his valuable pool cue. Yeah. The best thing he owns, I think. He tries to pawn it to the pool hall. She, well, she doesn't know anything about pool, does she? So she doesn't want it. So he takes it away with him and grabs a, a cab to Monkey Park to meet Huang. Coincidentally, the gangster guy was just upstairs in the pool hall. Very nearly catches Weibu. Although he perhaps wouldn't know what he looked like. I'm not sure about that. We'll find out later. As he gets out of the cab, as he's near this monkey park, he sees Grandpa, who's down by the river. Or, well, it's a river channel. There's not much river in it, is there? Is he throwing the dog bag in there? 
Mm. Yeah, he chucks his dead dog in a plastic bag. <laughs> it's just so grim, isn't it? <laughs> it's unremittingly grim, isn't it? But... Unremittingly, yeah. But he speaks to the old man. But you see, it's these moments. They seem to know each other, right? I guess they do. I, the think, same... I, think, I think all, all, all of them are supposed to live vaguely in the same block of yeah. flats, aren't they? He actually asks the old man if he'll take money for if you give him money for the pool cue and he'll come back for it later and that kind of thing and it's valuable the old man though he just says here's some money you know take the take the cue not a lot of money though is it but he gives him the pool cue anyway that's when that big dog owner guy comes up and starts haranguing them and there's a bit of a fight isn't there Weibu sort of defends grandpa for it and they talk about the elephant sitting still that and he asks him why does it matter to you it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so in Monkey Park now, Juan meets Weibu and he's saying, I'm going to go to Manjuli, come with me. But they're standing in front of an empty monkey cage. I didn't see any evidence yes, that monkeys are there. Yeah. Yeah, there were no monkeys, yeah. So uh, then she leaves and he kind of semi-stalks her to wherever she's going next. Is that right? She laughs at him for thinking that he could make something of himself in Manjuli. She's right, I guess. She says, you can only play shuttlecocks. He says, you're good at it, but who's going to pay you to do that? And he says, anyone can waste their time on any meaningless shit. Yeah, lots of, there's lots of pithy, depressing one-liners delivered here, isn't there? About the fundamental nature of life and its pointlessness. It's kind of like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy without a sense of humour, isn't it, really? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Grandpa and the gangster cross paths, don't they? Because he hears a commotion in their apartment. Yeah. I think Yu Cheng sees him with the pool cue and it kind of puts two and two together. I don't know how exactly, but asks him where he got it. He says of this cue that the owner beat up a piece of trash and that piece of trash is my brother. What do you think I should do? <laughs> <laughs> he tells his goons to keep an eye on the grandpa, keep him there. That's right, yeah. He goes off to do something else while, while they're looking after him, as it were. So then we go to the bakery, don't we, where Quang Ling, our lead family, female, is waiting to have kind of dinner date with the vice principal is that right is it a bakery it's some kind of it's restaurant restaurant spaghetti restaurant that kind of thing and Weibu is kind of like semi-stalking or, or peeking outside but he the is, gangster turns up doesn't he he, he does so he, he doesn't recognise Weibu at this moment yeah so that's interesting I didn't understand why he didn't know who he was well it's a shitty school they probably don't have their photos on their student files do they no one he's asked has had photos on the phone yeah, strange. In the restaurant, we know that Juan is there. We know the vice dean is there. Although we don't see exactly what happens until later. It's, it's the only bit that's like non-linear, I think, this bit. Yeah. But yeah, Yu Cheng, the gangster, speaks to YB and says, don't be a good-for-nothing like he is. After a moment's thought, Weibu writes a note saying, you're screwed. And he goes over to the window of the restaurant where Juan is sitting. He, he, he sticks it to the window and then runs away. No, it's not clear. The vice, the vice principal and Huan Ling are in some sort of relationship, whether it's romantic, sexual or not. It's never really made explicitly clear, is it? Apparently, it turns out that she's fucked because there's online video of her and the vice principal either having a dinner date or singing together in karaoke, I think. The actual fact is not that serious, but I think we're supposed to suppose they are having a sexual relationship as well. Is that right? Yeah, we don't see what the video is, do we? We just hear mm. the music that accompanies the video. <laughs> I think it's fairly clear from the way they are that they are having some sort of sexual intimacy. Yes, though, isn't it? yeah, I think so. Yeah, and we, we see now the scene in the restaurant with the Vice Dean and Juan and they're uh, talking about stuff. He's a frightful bore, isn't he? He's a right dick. <laughs> I mean, he just, he bores <laughs> us stupid. I think this is supposed to be funny too, the way that he lectures <laughs> them about life. He does, uh, and he doesn't know anything about their lives. I don't no. think he understands anything about what, what they're dealing with. He's, he tells a story about a boy and when he was at school. It's a good story, actually, because it's really quite it's quite pointless but funny at the same time. He says he watched a guy who killed a cat with That's stones. That's right, yes. And he wanted to stop it, but he didn't want to get involved. If he stopped it, he would be involved. That's, well, that's a very Chinese thing. You can't, if you've had a, don't interfere with the road accident. I mean, that's what happened with the dog, isn't it? The, the bigger dog attacked the smaller dog. Now the granddad has admitted that his dog was in, in fact, you know, had some sort of fight with the bigger dog. He's liable for any damages that the bigger dog might have happened for whatever reason, being knocked over by a car or anything like that. That's what happens in Chinese law. It's kind of like a bleak statement about modern grasping Chinese society, I think. We get one of these lines, life. Is it the other line? Life just won't get better. It's all about agony. Yes. But there's a, just before that, that end line, there's another end line where it's like, you know, he talked about this. He said, actually, I wanted to beat the cat too. We all do. 
that's just how life is, kind of thing, which is. Just you said so he enjoyed strange. watching it. He enjoyed, yes, he enjoyed watching, it. watching it. She traps him in a lie about telling her that he was divorced. She said she saw him pick up his kid or something, and he says, "Well, separated." We learn later that not even that is true, don't we? Mm-hmm. And then they're interrupted because someone puts a note on the window. <laughs> Which we know is our lead protagonist, Wayfair. She runs out to try and catch him, but he's already gone by the time she gets out. Meanwhile, Grandpa has gone back home. He tells the family and his granddaughter that the dog is dead in quite a perfunctory way. They're like, hooray, you don't need to worry about moving to a nursing home with a dog now. (laughs) He puts on on a smarter coat and he goes out with a pool cue in hand. He's going to go and have a look at a nursing home, isn't he? It turns out he's ex-army, so maybe he's tasty with a pool cue, yeah. He has, he has dignity, doesn't he, the grandpa? I like him. Oh, that's that's why he was waiting at the restaurant, Paul. Because now out of the, the restaurant that we were outside, mm-hmm. a woman emerges. Yu Cheng knows this woman. It's the woman he called. It's his ex. Ah. He'd figured out that she was there, so he was waiting for her to come out. She says goodbye to right. her friends. He takes her for another bite to eat. She seems very hungry. She said she didn't eat much in the last restaurant. But they're eating in a really small kind of like hole-in-the-wall type restaurant, aren't they? He blames He says, the reason my ki- my friend kills, kills himself was because I couldn't have sex with you. And so I went somewhere yeah. else. You rejected me, so I went to my best friend's girlfriend because <laughs> of you that he's dead. Again, I don't think he really believes that. He's telling himself that, isn't he? <laughs> Suddenly, whilst they're eating, a, a little fire emerges in the... erupts in the yeah, small kitchen. I forgot about that. The chef is screaming and... Yu Cheng runs into the kitchen, helps the guy and puts it out, gets a bit burnt himself on his hand. Scene cuts from there. We're now in the Vice Dean's apartment, which is a bit nicer than some of the others. Certainly tidier, isn't it? Again, he's regaling Huan with some trite aphorisms about some shit as they go up in the lift and stuff. She winds up lying on his sofa and she's idly checking her phone. And this is when group chat messages that have been blowing up on her phone throughout the meal that she ignored. She watches the group chat now and she sees video of her and the Vice Dean together. Quite innocuous. They're just at karaoke singing, aren't they? So, But to the adolescent might, might be end of your world kind of thing. The Vice Dean concludes that his career is over, so it must be more serious than that, Paul, I think. It's obviously not deniable. Mm-hmm. He realises now that he won't be able to go to the, the better school with a better <laughs> office. He initially blames the guy who put the note on the restaurant, but Han points out that the video was out yesterday, so it couldn't have been him. He tells her that she's got to go now, so he ushers her out with the rest of her belongings. But they're soon going to meet again when his wife drags him to her apartment, to the young girl... Uh, Huanling's apartment to confront uh, the the slot that slept with her husband, apparently. But in the meantime, we see Young Cheng talking to his ex now, and he's accusing her of faking her middle class life, and she's talking about feeling uncomfortable with him. It's sort of like she she's pretentious, I guess. He's like a bit of rough for her, I think is the idea. But I think it's, yeah. that whole dynamic has really sort of faded for her, so she's not interested anymore. He actually invites her to go to Manjulia and he tells her about the mm. elephant story, which he thinks is funny. I don't know why it's funny, but I think she's done with him, isn't she? She, yeah. she walks off at that point. Weibu goes to the hospital because he's trying to see the bully, the bully guy pushed down the stairs, but he arranges to meet his mate at the shopping centre. He needs some help. I think he's trying to get some money, isn't he, so he can get a ticket out of here. Mm-hmm. But Lee, Lee K brings Weibu's parents with him. That's right, yeah. And Waibu is pissed off about that, so he, he tries to avoid seeing them. Corners his friend Lee, drags him into a stairwell, berates him for doing it. That's when we get the revelation that the reason that Lee actually stole the phone of the bully. And he did it because the bully had been taking videos of him, including of him pissing. Yes. And there were other videos on it, including Huan with the Vice Dean, so obviously the bully had done that as well. Waibu is just furious. He's saying, you sold me out to my parents. And two, you just follow shit. You told me you didn't steal the phone. Why did you lie to me? And so he's kind of at his wit's end with, I guess his only close friend. You know? The grandpa has gone to a nursing home. He's had a brief walk around. I say brief. There's a torturous sequence where we see room after room of depressed elderly people in the kind of behaviours you see polar bears in zoos doing, isn't it? It's <laughs> quite, quite a harrowing experience. And then doesn't he go back to his apartment? where? No, no, he doesn't. 
No, he, he leaves and goes straight to the station. Oh, what what about the point where he's beating up uh, Yu Chung's gangster? His 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 little is that before? Huh? Oh, he's done that already. I think. Oh, he's done that already. And that was only the briefest of moments, wasn't it? He's quite a heroic figure, though, isn't he? This retired army. He is, yeah. Officer, like uh, he doesn't say very much. He walks the walk, but doesn't really talk the talk. Well, I don't know. Walk the walk and talk the talk. Is that the phrase? The thing about this film is everything is now revolving around the station and the yes. idea of escape to Manjuli, yeah. this like yeah. mythical sort of place, this heaven beyond the, the hell that they're in kind of thing. So Weibu has this $10 in his pocket that Grandad has given to him. There's a huge queue for the tickets to Manjoli. I'm not quite sure why. So instead he goes and buys from a scalper. Is that right? Before that, though, he's learned... I think he went back to the hospital and he learns, I think, the bully is dead. Dead, yeah. So he knows he has to leave. He can't He, stay he goes out of the hospital and yells scumbag sort of into nothing in an industrial wasteland that's just close by there. As you do, yeah. The scenery in this film is absolutely astoundingly bleak, but amazing also, isn't it? Now, it's, you might say that's conveniently nearby, but I think in Northern China, maybe that industrial wasteland <laughs> was conveniently nearby the hospital, so... <laughs> As you say, he buys from a scalper. Grandpa is there buying a ticket for himself and for a child. Mm-hmm. So I guess we're getting the idea he's going to try and take his granddaughter, even though his parents, obviously, her parents wouldn't want him to do that. Meanwhile, Juana is at home confessing to her mum what she's done with the vice dean. Her mum is not very supportive. Her mum is a med- medicine salesperson, isn't she? And she's not supportive because she's, essentially, she's selling her body to make sales, isn't she? She's saying, if you like middle-aged gentlemen, maybe you can start sleeping with some of my clients to make more sales. Another one of these lines, she says, my life's miserable, and it's always been like this. It always will be. (laughs) And Huang is just disgusted. She's like, you revolt me. How can you suggest that? You revolt me. Then, suddenly, the vice dean's wife and the vice dean arrive. Huge scene. Huang's, like, locked in a room. And mum's sort of standing up for her, though, at that point, isn't she? But Huang sort of packs a bag, jumps out of the window. Which is ground floor. It's not a problem. She runs around. She hears the vice dean's wife really having a go at her mother. I think Huang's really cool here, isn't she? She snaps, doesn't he? Doesn't she? Yeah. She goes back in. She grabs that baseball bat. She keeps by the front door. She goes back in. She beats the crap out of her. She whacks both the, the, the vice dean and the wife. But probably the wife in particular. We don't really see it in detail, do we? She looks at her mum. She exchanges silent glance with the mum. Then she scarpers, doesn't she? Hooray, so we're all off to Manjoli. <laughs> get in the rainbow bus, get in the happy bus, and let's have a nice time looking at elephants. But Waibu's bought this fake ticket and it doesn't work. Well, he somewhat stupidly goes back to the scalper and says, look, you bought me a fake ticket. And the scalper says, you know, there's 100,000 people at the railway station. I'm sure you've got the wrong person, although obviously he hasn't. And I think this is well done here, his innocence, because the scalper says, well, I'll come and get you another one. At this point, you've been tricked once. Why be tricked again? But I guess he's desperate to go to Manjoli. I sold it in good faith, essentially, is what you're saying. Which is obviously yeah, the person who right. sold it to me, I didn't know it was fake kind of thing. Let's go and see him. He leads Weibo out of the station. And again, we're in this, like... Amazing. They're up past this really tall kind of retaining wall yes. in the middle of this wasteland. And he goes it's up a retaining wall that serves as a roof, I think, to some subsidiary <laughs> structures near the railway station. But it's all kind of in crumbly, uneven concrete. It's fabulous, isn't it? So a really well-chosen location. They're standing there overlooking the railway tracks and there's an exchange with these gangster types who tout these tickets. At one point they ask for his ID. One of them recognises him immediately from his ID and messages Yo Chang or calls him. Yeah, so it turns out they are all Yu Chang's goons, aren't they? Looks like he's in deep trouble. Grandpa is going to get his granddaughter from school. He's going to get her put her on the train and go to Mount Julie. Yeah. Wei Bu has been kind of roughed up by these guys. Yeah. And, Wang, and Yu Cheng arrives... And this moment where long period of silence as he stands over this little boy, this boy, 17-year-old boy. But we get his face, it's almost like, it's almost like a Western face-off, but without guns, isn't it? And one person sitting down. It's quite strange, I think. Well, Wei Bu's just sitting there dejected, isn't he? With mm. his head in his hands. Think, you know, that's it. Yu Cheng, though, he's had this day, he's seen his best friend kill himself. He's sort of come to terms. He's growing within himself in many ways. His, his, his brother's dead. And he says, he says to, he says to Weibu, yeah, I really don't like my little brother. So you tell me what I'm going to do about you. He asks the boy, what would he do if he was standing on top of a tall building? And Weibu says something which I think is incredibly ambiguous and speaks quite a lot to the mental state of the writer and director here. Yeah. He says, I would think, what else can I do? And this really affects Yu Cheng, doesn't he? He, like, weeps at this point. Mm. He briefly gets on the phone to his auntie, by which what I mean is his best friend's mum, who he calls auntie. He calls her and he says that he, he admits that he watched him jump 
Because I think previously he'd said he'd only found out after the fact. I think he gets some sort of temporary closure about that, doesn't he? But it's obviously in a completely different mindset to where, how he started out at the start of the day. Then he, he asks Weibu where he's going, and of course Weibu says he's going to Manjuli to I'm see sure, the elephant, yeah. which hits Yu Cheng like a ton of bricks, because that's where he was talking about going. But he says he has no money. Yu Cheng turns to his goons and he says, go to the station, buy this kid a ticket. Yeah. So he sees a lot of, I think he sees a lot of himself in the kid, doesn't he? He's having a moment here where he's, he's achieving empathy with other human beings, isn't he, finally? Yeah. But he tells him that now he's killed someone, someone will get him anyway. He doesn't have to do it. And Wu Bei's saying it was an accident, but yeah, he's explaining the stuff about him being his brother. He says, if I was his dad, then he'd be half dead by now. And Wei Bu says, but you know, why are you letting me go? And he says, none of your business. <laughs> At which point... Wei Bu's mate arrives, like yes, Li Kai. live wire trigger, hair trigger Li Kai has to turn up, doesn't he? And he's pointing his gun, claiming to have called the cops. As he's pointing the gun at Yu Cheng and there's a kind of standoff going on, Li Kei is actually saying he's going to take the rap for Wei Bu, isn't he? He's saying, mm. He says, that, I'll say that I did it kind of thing. Just as that's happening, <laughs> Yu Cheng's gangster goons arrive back behind Li I Kei. like this. It's a really nicely shot scene. Again, it's, it's happening slightly blurred, isn't it? But they're yeah. sneaking up behind him. They try grabbing him. The gun goes off. Yu Cheng gets shot. I think only in the leg, but nonetheless the leg, he gets yeah. shot. Enough to make him sort of sit down on the floor anyway. At this, the goons run off because there's been a gunshot and someone's got shot and they don't want any part of it anymore. Weibu goes over to the Kai who is distraught. He's saying he didn't upload the Huan video, doesn't know who did. And Wei leaves, he's got his ticket somehow. Didn't see that exchange happening, but he's he leaves and he goes off to the station. Lee is chatting to Yu Cheng, who is obviously in some distress with his shot leg. And again, we get another one of these terrible moments. He says, the world is just disgusting. And then he holds the gun under his chin and shoots himself. You know, he had a bit of light relief when they get to Manjoli and see some elephants, wouldn't they? <laughs> Grandpa and his granddaughter, Huan and Weibu, they're all there. But it turns out the train has been cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> if many other parts of this story seem alien and excessively bleak, I think this is something that in Britain we can all understand well. <laughs> Replacement bus services. They're talking about alternative routes, but Grandpa says he's got to go back. He's got to take his granddaughter back. He's got to go to a nursing home. He gives a little speech about the grass is always greener, isn't it? Mm. You've got to learn to live with things here. But Wei Bu actually persuades him to come to Shenyang by bus and find another route to, to manage Julie. So they get some sort of sleeper bus, don't they? Which is They wind up on the bus... And we get a scene, exterior at night, and after a long bus drive, it pulls up in the middle of nowhere, there's no lights anywhere. They're in a car park or a coach park, aren't they? And passengers emerge slowly one by one, and Weibu's among them. We're seeing this, it's a very long shot, but you can recognise him sort of instantly. He starts playing shuttlecock with something in in a plastic bag. As this happens, the music that we've been listening to, which is amazing music, I really love the music. It doesn't play very often, but the incidental music is really atmospheric. That fades away to silence. Again, this takes several minutes, doesn't it? It seems to. Yeah, it's a good three or four minutes of playing shuttlecock, yeah. And then we hear an elephant call, and then we get the titles, and the film ends. And it ends with a dedication to Hubu, the the filmmaker who Hubo, killed himself. Yeah. There you go. Paul, it was an experience. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head with because you've written down all the sort of uh, nihilistic aphorisms that occur throughout <laughs> the movie, Richard. So you seem to have stumbled upon the directorial intent, I think. What does nihilism mean? I thought it meant the sense that nothing matters, right? It's purposelessness, isn't it? Yes. Isn't that nihilism? Yeah. I mean, this goes a bit beyond nihilism, doesn't it? Things here are relentlessly bleak. Sure, nothing matters. They can't do anything to change their lot, it would seem. But everything is stacked against some terrible things happen to a lot of the time. This is, this is more than nihilism. It's, it's well, more I, than I nothing matters. It's like everything is shit. Yes. I mean, all the characters are mutually misanthropic, aren't they? As well as being nihilistic. Yeah, and, and nihilism is an internal sense, right? It's something you carry within you. Yes. Whereas what's happening to them is... They're not nihilistic. They're in a place that's grimly horrible. Yeah, what, they what, want to go and see elephants in Manjoli. So, you know, they, yeah, they have they hopes and dreams. Escape. And this is one of my... I don't want to use the word a problem with this film. I don't think this film has problems. This is a life's work of one man, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's face it. I mean, I think he did a few other shorts. He may have written a 
another book or two. And he was quite young, wasn't well, he? He's, he's a novelist turned filmmaker, I think. What I don't understand is, I've only read a brief biography about him, but he went to some kind of film school in Beijing, right? Presumably, he's not one of these kids. And if he was, he's he's done very well for himself, or he did very well for himself, right? Mm-hmm. But he's not winding up as a street food vendor or a gangster. He's done something different for himself. Now, I'm not saying that people who are do well for themselves can't also get depressed. I'm not saying that. Mm. But I am saying that some people, when you read the reviews, say that this film reads like a suicide note, and I don't understand how it can be. Okay, I, so what did you say, though? Yeah. Money doesn't buy happiness, but it certainly makes the hard things easy to go through, doesn't it? I mean, it well, yes. Yeah, and you, you wouldn't be living in a place like this if you had the money. Presumably, if he's got the money to go to a Beijing film school. The, the message is quite clear that you can't escape this. Yes. It's inescapable. Life and all its attendant horrors are inescapable. So I think what he's saying is that it's not just shitty towns that like shitty towns. I think he's saying that all of China and potentially all the world is like this anyway. I just think he's throwing it into more silhouetted light by, by placing it in, in a town that is this shitty. I said at the start of this podcast that I didn't find it as bleak and nihilistic as perhaps it seems on the face. <laughs> now you've had Every- a chance to reflect on it, maybe it is. Sorry, go on. Everything about it is set in that light, absolutely. And I'm literally in that light. It's grey, it's bleak, everything is depressing, everything is against them. And yet, Yu Chang really grows or changes as a character, it seems. He's a different mm-hmm. person by the end of the film. He's sort of admirable in some ways. Wei Bu is, has a real kind of dignity to him, doesn't he? He, he has a sense of honour. And even his best friend, who he doesn't seem to like all that much for a best friend, but even his best friend comes good for him. He comes to rescue him at the end. Bit of a stupid way to do it, sure. But you've got to hand it to him for his, his heart in doing that. But I think even so, I think what he's saying, even, even despite that, it's still a clusterfuck, isn't it? You know? It is still a clusterfuck, absolutely. But I found those moments to be quite uplifting. I found plenty in this film that would give me, um, what's the word, that, that would that would erode my nihilism. <laughs> I found it quite uplifting in a lot of ways. Mm. I did find it depressing. I find it quite funny. I think it is meant to be blackly humorous at times. Really? Yeah. Maybe I wasn't watching it in quite that mood, I don't know. But Well, I think about The Office on David Brent. Like, <laughs> for people outside the UK culture, they would say, is this... Trying to be funny? It is trying to be funny, isn't it? But it's a different... It's tragically humorous, I suppose. Yeah, so like when the wife turns up, I think like she, her husband has been sleeping with a student and yet she's turned up to defend him and screeching at the door. I think that's supposed to be like blackly humorous, isn't it, kind of stuff? Sure, you know? yeah. Uh, all that yeah. kind of stuff. But I think it is quite culturally locked in. I'm, I'm not sure it necessarily translates out, out, of, out of China or even northern China kind of stuff. So I'm yeah. glad, Richard, this cheered you up. I wouldn't go so far as to say it cheered me up. I, I suppose in some ways it kind of armours you against against a lot of the, the, the bleaker feelings. In many the bleak aphorisms I didn't jot down, but I remember watching it thinking, my God, I mean, it's a stoic way to deal with life, isn't it? The army, the old retired uh, army granddad, you know, just stay here, deal with your feelings about how unbearable this is. And then the next day, this awful place will somehow become a little bit better if you drop any hope or dream of leaving it if you accept your fate kind of thing. <laughs> it's just so bleak with the same time. It's actually quite a useful little bit of tidbit to use forward in life, isn't it? And the other thing, just to make this point, they don't stay. They do get out. They leave and they go somewhere. And we don't know what they find there, but well, presumably... The elephant is what we're left with at the end, isn't it? <laughs> well, I suppose part of that message there is that the elephant doesn't really exist, right, does it? it it's a symbol that, in a way, the old man is right, the grandpa is right they're going to find things are not much better. But the act of getting up and getting off your ass and leaving is, I think, half the battle, right? And they're bound to feel better about it in some ways. Sure. I don't know. So is he recommending that we all kill classmates and force ourselves out of our, our comfort zone? I don't know. But I was just going to say that the other thing about it is you can watch this film and go, well, at least I don't live in somewhere like, like that. However bad it gets here, we we seem to be doing okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I can't uh, imagine though. I can't imagine the CCP would have been very happy with this film as a depiction of China. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the bad actors are all individual bad actors. It's not sy- sy- systemic, is it? I mean, the the vice principal, the vice dean, has decided to behave like he does because he's decided to do that. Sure. Okay. 
in a sense, it, you, you could even make an argument for there's a socialistic morality to the movie, isn't there? So I don't know. Mm. It, but it got published anyway, so they can't be that annoyed with it. <laughs> so I guess so. All right, well, let's do acting then. Yeah, I, Wei Bu, like the lead the young male, he does this strong silent type thing, which I think is really effective. It has real presence, his, his speechlessness. It carries on because... The tennis series that I was watching later, he does the same kind of character. Strong and silent, doesn't say very much type. But I think it carries off really well as a slightly disgruntled adolescent who's out of his depth. It really comes across well. Uh, for me, I think that the strong performance with Huang Ling, the young girl protagonist, I think she just carries it off really, really well. Her situation, her nervousness, the fact that she's really in a bit of a bind. I thought all the acting was pretty, pretty amazing, really. It was pretty good, it was- wasn't it? It was very naturalistic in a lot of senses, but then these very long pauses and, yeah. Again, when you're watching a film in a language other than your own, there is a tendency to focus quite a lot on the non-verbal elements of the acting. Yes. And it's very strong. You, you really see people thinking uh, and changing their mind on the screen. It's, it's there were some filmic cues. I think Yu Chung, the gangster, it, it was taking quite a lot from gangster, Chinese gangster movies, wasn't it? His character. But at the same time, I think a lot of gangsters, they watch the gangster movies and try to become that anyway. So, Well, the one unrealistic thing, the one non-naturalistic thing about this film is they are all clearly actors. They're all movie stars. They all look amazing, frankly. Except the bully. The bully doesn't look too amazing, does he? It was difficult to believe he was the brother of Yu Cheng, wasn't it? <laughs> Who is sort of a thin-moustached kind of <laughs> yeah. dandy, isn't he? You know, uh, <laughs> He looked great, yeah. But for acting, I've got to give it a nine. It's pretty stunning. Yeah, it's made Peng uh, Yu Cheng, the guy who played the male lead, it's made, it's made his career this, okay. Uh, 8.5 I'm going to go for. It is very, very solid and very impressive acting. So we have to talk about plot. Of which there was a lot. <laughs> it was nicely interweave, wasn't it? Note to directors, it was mostly... It wasn't time-shifted that much, was it? No, no, it was told almost... But for a few moments, it was almost real time, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think many other directors would have gone clever and done the four stories separately and then have to... Then your own mind, you have to move between them and think about what happened when in relation to each other. But moving through the four stories as they all developed consecutively, I thought was a good decision. It made it very easy to follow. There was a moment when we started to realise that the stories were interwoven. Yes. And it was probably when the woman was going around looking for a big dog. Yes, I and think it was, we'd yeah. seen the dog in one scene, and then we were with some of the other characters, and she's going, have you seen my dog? And I thought, this is cheesy. I don't know why we need it. But it seemed like... It was there to reference the interwovenness, wasn't it, I think? But in the end, I didn't hate it. I started to think that maybe I was wrong for thinking it was a bit cheesy. It does make it seem like a small town, though, right? Because everyone seems to kind of be in everyone's business. Yeah. But, I mean, the plot is almost unlike any other. I know we've referenced some similar works, perhaps, but while I'm not sure this is a suicide note in that sense... I don't think it is. I certainly think you you can understand that such a thing could probably only come from someone who was in that frame of mind, maybe. For that reason, it's pretty unique. I've got to give it an eight, I think. It's a really strong story. It is beautifully interwoven. Maybe cheesy so at times. For me, the story, the plotline gets an 8.5. Now, we could do the mood, as it were. Let's do do... mood nihilism and potentially misanthropy. (laughs) I I don't know how to score this now. Look, I mean, the sense of bleakness. It's a whole vibe, isn't it, this movie? Yeah. Yeah. But again, I'm amazed at how it didn't make me sad, actually. It made me almost happy. It is cathartic, I I think, to to face this kind of misery. The the incredible choice of shots and the incredible mood that it sets and the moodiness of it all, it's really strong. I've got to give it an eight. I think this is the strongest element of it. It really does convey a quite overwhelming (laughs) overwhelming (laughs) sense of pointless, doesn't it? And the fact they're all trying so, so hard to work towards this meaningless end. Okay, So I just liked it for that reason. I'm going to score it in nine. Okay, I was going to say maybe we do cinematography, but Uh, perhaps we've... We've kind of covered that, haven't we? We have kind of covered it. So let's do overall, including cinematography, though. I would say that there's not very much stuff about it on IMDb. Mm. One thing it does say is that the director and his uh, cinematographer had planned 
to do it all with static shots, you know, right. with tripods and stuff. But they ended up, because of budget constraints, having to do a lot of it handheld. I don't understand mm-hmm. how this film would have worked with static shots. Because as you said, quite a lot of the scenes are following. You're just looking at Weibu's backpack as he walks from place to place. Yeah. Quite a lot of the film is all about that. And it worked really well. I don't understand how it would have worked, really. So mystifying that comment. I guess we can't ask him. But look, overall, this film way exceeded my expectations. It's much better than I had expected. And I certainly have to recommend it. There are trigger warnings. Obviously, people do kill themselves in and out of this film. But uh, I think it it can be watched and enjoyed. So I'm going to give it a nine. A nine, yeah. I mean, it has has literally two seasons worth of soap opera events in there. Yes, it does. It's just so much happy. (laughs) And yet somehow it doesn't seem far-fetched. It's just that one day where everything just goes awry. I loved it. I didn't expect to. I kind of suggest this uh, as, as, a, <laughs> as, a, as a film to see, can we get through this four hours? And it wasn't a chore, as you said. In the end, I'm going to score it an 8.5, a really, really strong show in here. I don't think we can do much better, Paul, but let's uh, think about a movie for next week. Okay. Well, it definitely is your choice since I foisted this international effort upon you, Richard. So I'm going to give you three choices, and I think they should be to your taste. We've got Invisible Man, of which there are many. I mean the 2020. Nocturnal Animals and Dark Waters. Ha. Huh. Right. So, for a number of reasons we can explore next week, I would like to go for The Invisible Man 2020. This is the one directed by Lee Wanell. Thank you for that clarification. Yes. That will be the version of The Invisible Man we see next week for the podcast. Thank you for listening. Did you want to say Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Bye. Thank you.